titled this message, The Reward of the Righteous. Beloved, every day on television and radio, true Christianity is being distorted and perverted by men and women who claim to speak for God. One recurring message is Christians should be experiencing, quote, the good life now and shouldn't have to wait until they get to heaven. According to these teachers, the abundant life Jesus promised to Christians in John chapter 10, verse 10, includes having good health and great wealth. By the way, at some point, I would just challenge you to go back to John 10, 10 and see if anywhere in that chapter you can find anything about health and wealth. Some are not as direct in their statements, but when they speak... They sound more like a positive, motivational speaker than they do a preacher of God's Word. Avoiding anything that might sound negative or harsh or undesirable to the people. In fact, you will find it difficult to catch them talking about sacrifice and suffering that is promised to those who faithfully follow the Jesus of the Bible. However, you will have no problem hearing about how Christians can have a better, more comfortable life, free from difficulties and trouble, a life that apparently a lot of people desire above all else, considering the amazing and large crowds that gather to hear them week after week. So here's my question. Is that true Christianity? Is it? Is that the message of the Bible that Jesus came and died in in part to make sure things would go really well for us during our temporary stay on earth? That we during this age would prosper or do well physically or financially or socially? If that is the message of the Bible, then the early church and Jesus' apostles must have been confused. And they didn't get it. In fact, Jesus himself must have missed it. Because none of them talked that way or promoted that idea. In fact, what they said and did actually contradicted that very idea. So who is right? The prosperity preachers who are getting richer every day from their, quote, faith, financial offerings of their followers? Or modest, suffering Jesus and His poor, beaten, persecuted, imprisoned, and murdered disciples? Who's right? Well, let's see if we can figure it out. Mark chapter 6. You guys there? Are you ready? We do this every week, but we'll try that again. Mark chapter 6. Are you there? Are you ready? All right, let's get into the Word of God. It is the best thing we can do all week long. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 14. I'll read through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, He is Elijah. 
And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had been sent, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. If you're new with us, inside of those bulletins that we maybe you have, on the inside left side there is an outline that you can follow along. At the top of that outline, there's a statement. This morning we will consider the consequences of John's righteous life so that we will not be surprised when we suffer for being Christians. Very simple message, very simple outline, not so simple to accept. Last week, just by way of reminder, we looked at the mission that Jesus had given his men. In fact, we titled that message On Mission. Specifically, his men were the twelve. In Mark chapter 6, verse 12, we are informed that they complied with Jesus' instructions by proclaiming repentance to the people and performing supernatural signs. Specifically, those signs were many exorcisms and many healings. Now, the text from last week, as I said, we were not told what level of success that they actually had with the people. That is, how many people responded positively and how many people responded negatively to their message. But we can conclude from the text that they were faithful to their mission. It is not until Mark chapter 6, verse 30 which we'll look at next week, where this story that we just read about, or the story from last week that we read about, them being sent out the twelve, actually picks back up. And we read there that the apostles, the twelve, return from their mission, their mission of proclaiming repentance to the people, and they report to Jesus, their master, all that had happened. But that picks back up in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. In the middle of this exciting story about Jesus sending out his men is this very sobering and sad story about the man that we were introduced to in the first chapter of Mark. That man being John the Baptist. So I want to just give you a little bit of background about John the Baptist and then we'll get back to the text. Just as by way of reminder for some of you, maybe this is new for others, 
John was also, just like the twelve, sent on a mission by God. We see that in John chapter 1, verse 6. And his mission was to prepare the nation of Israel for Jesus, their coming king. We see that in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. How is he going to do that? By preaching repentance. The people needed to repent for their sins, for their righteous king was coming. Like the twelve, John's mission was not about self-promotion, but to promote the one who would come after him. You see that in Mark chapter 1, verse 7. I'll just read it to you. And he preached, saying, After me, this is John the Baptist, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. If you're a note taker, you can also write down John chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, a reference to John pointing to Jesus in his ministry. Now, before John was born, an angel said to John's father, you'll see this in Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. It's up here on the screen for you. This is what the angel said in regard to John the Baptist before he was born. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, that's his dad, for your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. History shows us that the angel's promise was fulfilled exactly. He was great before the Lord. He was a righteous man of God and faithful to God. So that only begs the question, why did he get such a raw deal? Incarceration and execution? Is this what you can expect when you're faithful to the Lord? I mean, the guy was obedient. So maybe I'm thinking he didn't know that God wanted him to be rich and successful. Because if he believed that, maybe he wouldn't have got himself in so much trouble with the king. Or maybe, if he had more faith, he could have been the king. Living large in his big mansion and rolling in his custom chariot. You know what I'm talking about? No. No. So let's get back to this sad story. Why does Mark place it in the middle, the story about John the Baptist, tragic? In the middle of what appears to be a very exciting and positive development in Jesus' ministry, which we started last week. That is the sending out of his disciples, his twelve, his apostles, to proclaim his message abroad. Listen to what one commentator says. I I think he just nails it. And I want to expand upon this. He says this, This story, the story of John the Baptist, placed in the middle, it's like a sandwich. On one side we're told the twelve are sent out. Then we have this terrible story about John being killed. Then we come back and we hear the twelve are coming back and they're reporting what has gone on and all that they've done. The commentator says this, This story exemplifies the consequences 
of following Jesus in a world of greed, decadence, power, and wealth. We can relate to that, can't we? That's our world. That's our world. That's our country. Mark sandwiches the brutal and moving account of the martyrdom of the Baptist between the sending of the twelve, which we saw in chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, and their return, which I said before we'll pick back up in verse 30, in order to impress upon his readers the sacrificial cost of discipleship. Of discipleship. In other words, let's be clear. Following Jesus will not be easy or luxurious. In fact, it is typically a road filled with many pains. But at the end of that difficult and unpopular, unpopular road is eternal life and all the glories of heaven. Look at this passage with me. Just think about it in light of what I've just said from the Word of God. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13, He says to the people, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are... What is that word? That is one very sad word in the Bible. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Are few. Additionally, let me say this. The temporary riches and pleasures of this world will clearly be seen as pathetic and unworthy of the Christian's concern and ambitions in comparison to what God will freely give to His people in the internal kingdom to come. So now, let's look back at the text. Chapter 6, verses 14 through 16. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Stop right there. These three verses are an introduction for Mark's report about John's final days on this earth. So it's just an introduction. So let me explain to you what's going on. The spreading news about Jesus, remember he had sent out his twelve and they're doing all kinds of supernatural things and proclaiming his message. That news and Jesus' ministry in Galilee had spread and no doubt had gotten back to Herod. Herod being the ruler of Galilee and Perea. Galilee, if you don't remember, is the area where Jesus has been spending his time doing Ministry, preaching and performing miraculous works. Now, people were still unsure about who this Jesus was, but they all identified him as someone who could have, or certainly had, supernatural powers. And he gives us three options. Hey, this Jesus, he's a resurrected John. Okay, He's Elijah, or he's a prophet of old. 
By the way, just a side note, this is another testimony to the reality of Jesus' miraculous works. If you notice, no one is denying the fact that miracles were happening. That's not being denied, but they were still confused about exactly who the guy was that could do these kind of things. Some, including Herod, thought John had resurrected or come back from the dead. It's odd, you think? For Herod and the others to think this meant that they were unaware of the fact that Jesus and John lived on earth at the same time and John actually baptized Jesus. See, because if they knew that, the idea would be illogical. But, since Jesus did not enter Galilee until sometime after John's arrest and ultimate murder, that wrong idea was assumed. So remember, they don't have CNN, Fox, uh, Twitter, e- email. You know, They don't have all that communication. So what happens in one side of the town, it takes a while to get back to the other side of the town. So the idea is this. Jesus enters in and begins his ministry. John has been arrested. John is soon murdered. They don't make the connection that Jesus was already in existence at the same time John was in prison. So some are thinking... John was murdered, and now this Jesus is doing these miraculous things. Maybe he's that John resurrected. John was not known for any miraculous works during his ministry, but a resurrected John, assuming that is who Jesus was, would apparently have supernatural power in their minds. I mean, if he came back from the dead, he must have the kind of power that would cause that to happen, so he could be possibly be the one that's performing these miraculous deeds. Because we don't know what's going on. We can't deny that something miraculous is happening, but we're trying to figure out who exactly this guy is. This is just introduction to our message here. Some thought that maybe it was the prophet Elijah. Elijah. And that's based on on the last prophecy recorded in the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5. And here's what that prophecy says. And the Jewish people would have known and been very familiar with the prophecy. It says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Elijah had been a prophet to Israel in the past, and according to this prophecy, Elijah, or an Elijah-like figure, is going to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, his judgment upon the world. Elijah, the prophet in the past, had done miraculous works. So they thought, maybe this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. Others imagined that Jesus was another prophet in the long line of prophets that God has sent to Israel throughout her history. By the way, at this point, God had been silent for 400 years. 400 years. In other words, no prophet no prophet of God, that is, had spoke to the people now for 400 years. So they were waiting and they were thinking, maybe this is just another prophet from God. We are now hearing from God again. And prophets were typically accompanied by miraculous events. They were all wrong. They were all wrong about Jesus' identity. But Herod came to the conclusion that the man he had murdered, that is John the Baptist, was risen from the dead and responsible for all the supernatural reports. At this point, Mark takes us back now 
and explains how John came to be murdered by Herod. And that brings us to our first point, John's incarceration. Look back at the text with me. John, or Mark chapter 6, verse 17. We'll read through 20. For it was Herod. Now he's going to explain to you what's going on and why Herod thinks it's this John the Baptist who he killed. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. This story is like an episode from Jerry Springer. It is a modern-day moral disaster. It's like a modern-day moral disaster. You know, people have always been messed up and sinful. You know, there's nothing really new under the sun. We watch Jerry Springer. Well, I, no, we don't. Maybe you do. I don't know. But you probably are familiar with it. We watch those type of shows and daytime shows, and you just think, wow, what a mess. The world's always been a mess. It's always been a mess. We just, it's just broadcast more now. And here we go, 2,000 years ago, Herod and his mess. Now, just to help you guys, this is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, not the Herod or the same Herod in Matthew chapter 2, verse 19, who has already died. That Herod who committed infanticide, genocide, killing all the children in an attempt to kill Jesus before he could grow up. That is a different Herod. And it's important. When you're reading through the New Testament, there are several Herods. They all come from Herod the Great. And he had a family. A big family. Because he had multiple wives and multiple sons. So they'll refer to them as Herod, but you have to know what Herod you're talking about. This is Herod Antipas. By the way, he was already married. Okay? And he finds himself desiring another woman. Wow, that's a shocker. That is already a problem, like I said, since he already has a wife. But what makes it worse is the woman that he desires is married to his half-brother, because they had different moms, Philip. His half-brother, Philip. Philip was not as well off or powerful like his brother, Herod, Antipas, since he fell out of favor with his dad, Herod the Great, and he had disinherited him. So, Philip, poor Philip, lived with his wife Herodias simply as a private citizen in Rome. Herodias was looking for a more glamorous life. Doesn't this sound like just the typical story that we hear every day? And Herod was attracted to her. So they hooked up. Herodias left her going nowhere husband Philip and Herod Antipas agreed to divorce his wife of many years. Who, by the way, was no insignificant person but the daughter of a very powerful king whose kingdom was just east of Herod's territory. So what do daughters do when their husbands throw them out? Typically. They typically go home, and in this case, she went home, back to daddy. 
Very powerful daddy. And Herod married his brother's wife. By the way, Herod's payback would come later (laughs) through an embarrassing military defeat in A.D. 36, led by, guess who? His ex-wife's father. So that's just some background. That's just some background. The situation with Herod and Herodias was a public scandal. You remember the whole Clinton thing? A public scandal and a moral failure for a ruler in Israel who supposedly had converted to Judaism, which meant that he would obey the Jewish Scriptures, the Old Testament, the Torah, the Law. John the Baptist comes on the scene boldly speaking out about this unrighteousness and rebuked the king, the leader of that area, Herod, for his violation of the Mosaic Law, which specifically Obviously, it prohibited adultery, but it also prohibited something else. In Leviticus 18.16 and chapter 20, verse 21, you could not marry your brother's sister. So even if he put her away, you were not allowed to have her as your wife. And that's exactly what Herod had done. And that's what the text reflects. One commentator from the 16th century, his name is Calvin, for any of you who are familiar with men that old, said this, We behold in John an illustrious example of that moral courage which all pious or virtuous teachers ought to possess, not to hesitate to incur the wrath of the great and powerful as often as it may be found necessary. Listen closely. For he with whom there is acceptance of persons does not honestly serve God. Wow, that's a bold statement. Herodias was so angered, okay? This is the wife, the new wife. She's so angered by John's stand for righteousness that she strongly desired to see him killed. You think that's an overreaction? She did not want anyone telling her how to live her life or telling her that she was wrong. We can relate with that, can't we? By the way, in Matthew 14.5, it's a, another presentation of the same story. It informs us that Herod also wanted to put him to death. You might get the wrong idea about Herod, like he was actually soft on John. He kind of liked John. John was kind of cool and... He was just protecting him. No, not according to Matthew 14.5. He wanted to put him to death too, but the text there says that he feared the negative reaction of the people who believed that John was a prophet of God. In fact, when we look at this text, or Mark 4.19-20, it tells us, or 6.19-20, it tells us that Herod prevented John's death. Why? Because he feared John. That's strange. Why would Herod fear John? He had no earthly power. This is why. Because he believed John was a righteous man and killing him, he thought, could bring him really bad luck, seriously, or some divine retribution. It's called religious superstition. We see this not so much today, but I remember when I was a kid growing up and they talked about gangs a lot in L.A. I remember watching this one show 
Gangs would come rolling through different areas of L.A., loaded up, packed, you know, shooting people up. But if a priest walked down the street, they'd back off. And they even interviewed one of these gang members. And, I mean, these guys are unrighteous, to say the least, and they're doing sinful things and hurting people. But they would not touch a priest because they feared that maybe something bad would happen to them, like a karma idea, because he was, quote, a holy man. In the same way, here's Herod, unrighteous as all get out. But he doesn't, he knows John is something special. So just in case, sweetie, I'd rather not kill him. I mean, I want him dead too, but it could bring some bad juju our way. You guys know what that, okay. Some of you knew, you can tell your friends later. So he compromised. This is what he does. He compromised. He locks him up as a way of silencing him. That's what he does. Here's my question. What was John's crime? What was his crime? (laughs) Here it is. He spoke the truth because he lived for God. That was it. The bold proclamation of the truth got John tossed in prison. What kind of reward is that? By the way, beloved, that is still happening today in many places in our world. We, we live in sort of a bubble in the United States of America. I think different days are coming, but God will handle that. But in the rest of the world, this kind of thing still goes on. I subscribe to a a publication called Voice of Martyrs. You can get it for free. It's a magazine that comes once a month. And the idea is that they relate to you all of the suffering that is going on by Christian brothers and sisters in the world around us. Most of us are clueless and have no idea. Let me read you one story. Very recent. Afghanistan. You know that place, right? You know? Where they're all free and everything? In prison, Afghan Christian, Saeed Musa has recently been released from prison. So that's the good news. Compass Direct News reported that Saeed left the country February 21st of 2011, just a month ago, after being released from prison days earlier. Saeed was arrested on May 31st, 2010, in that liberated country, after a TV station broadcast video showing Afghan Christians being baptized and worshiping. Turning from Islam is a capital offense in Afghanistan. Early in his imprisonment, Saeed was forced to publicly deny Jesus on TV, an act for which he later later repented. He wrote, I acknowledge my sin before the Lord Jesus Christ. I am a very weak and sinful man. I'm sure he was broken. In prison, Saeed was beaten, sleep-deprived, and physically and sexually abused. He wrote a series of letters to the international community detailing his treatment and discussing his faith. In a final letter dated February 13th, Saeed wrote that three Afghan officials tried to convince him to recant his faith. He wrote, quote, I laughed and replied, I can't deny my Savior's name because my life is just service to Jesus Christ and my death is going to heaven where Jesus Christ is. I am 100% ready to die. Here's another story. There's hundreds of them. 
Another Afghan Christian, I can't say his name, I'm not going to try, remains in prison, charged with the same apostasy charge that Saeed faced. This man was arrested in northern Afghanistan after, (laughs) here's his crime, giving a New Testament, a Bible, to a man who later reported him to authorities. In December, he was told he had one week to recant his faith or he would be sentenced to death for handing someone a Bible. A January court hearing was postponed due to international pressure. In a February 17th letter, he wrote, the court's decision is most definitely going to be the death penalty for me. And then it ends the story by saying diplomatic efforts are underway. Hmm. Let's look at the second point together. We go from John's incarceration for nothing more than boldly proclaiming the truth of his God and rebuking unrighteousness. Now to the saddest part of the story, John's execution. John chapter 6, verses 21 through 29. It says, An opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish. I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it. I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Isn't that nice? She went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went in and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter, a serving dish that they eat off of, and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So here we go. Herod throws himself a really big birthday party because that's what big important people do. All the important men in society were invited. There were just men at this party, by the way. Just the men. It was like our man's night out. Oh, by the way, that reminds me. This Friday, it's man's night out. This Friday. Who's coming? One, two, three, four. Okay. Yeah, grab, good. He's coming too. I see that in the back. Wife was pointing to her husband. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> hey, we would love for you to come and be there. Just be, just hang out with us. We have a really good time. It'll be at Tim's house. He lives in Rancho Cucamonga. That's why the whole commute thing. So, so that we don't get lost. So we'll go over there and, and have a good night together. Men need to be together for good things, not bad things. In this case, it was a bad thing. In walks his wife to this birthday party, his wife's daughter, that is, Salome. Herod's stepdaughter and niece. Just remember that. His niece, because it makes it more icky. And she begins to dance. Now, it doesn't say this in the text, but if, you, if you're studying historical context, scholars believe that this girl was probably in her late teens, maybe, maybe closer to 20 at the time. And the character of this type of dance, the solo dance that was done, was very sensual and sexually suggestive. One commentator says this, comparable to a striptease act in a modern nightclub. They were regularly performed by professional entertainers of low moral character. The Herodian dynasty and the families were so depraved, this would not have been 
that big of a deal to have his niece come in and, and perform for the men in this way. Herod is so pleased by the dance that he makes her an extravagant, pompous offer in front of his guest, saying something like this, I have the power to give you whatever I want. Just ask me and it will be yours. I can just see it. Can you imagine? Then he seals the deal, moron, by making a very generous and binding vow in verse 23. Literally an oral contract that could not be broken. And we don't understand this because we say things and we break it all the time. We even sign contracts and we break them. But back then, if the king or the one in, in leadership said something and made a vow, it was as good as gold. It was unbreakable. So what does the girl request? I don't know. Maybe a new camel. Home on the lake. Brand new wardrobe. Man, she blew it. She had so many opportunities there. No. She goes out, asks mommy, and mom had something else in mind. She wanted John dead. And to make sure it happened, she requested with urgency via her daughter, John's head. I mean, that's some confirmation, right? You get back someone's head, most likely they're not still alive. I mean, you sever it. You know how that works. Is that right, Chris? Is that how it works? Head gets separated from the body. They're not alive anymore. So per the daughter's request, immediately John's head was severed from his body, delivered to the girl on a food plate who handed it over to her dear mother. It's just grotesque. Now, verse 26, it it does not say that the king was sorry for John. It says he was sorry. But remember what I told you about Matthew. He wanted him dead too. He was more sorry that he had basically been duped, that he placed himself in a situation where he was going to have to do something that he did not really want to do for the specific reasons that I said before. He didn't want that bad vibe, potentially, or the wrath of God coming back on him for killing, quote, a righteous man. One commentator says this, given the widespread immorality of the Herodian lifestyle, one is somewhat amazed that John bothered to challenge it in the first place. He's just basically saying, listen, these guys were, they were gone, far gone. Why would you even be talking to them? I mean, this is nothing for them. He goes on to say, should he not have played his hand in a more important game? Ah, John, however, was a prophet without price whose thundering call exposed unrighteousness in any quarter. He did not read the polls before speaking and acting like our politicians do. He protected no special interest like our politicians do. I thought you guys would get that automatically. Nor did he predicate what he said and did on chances of success. So it wasn't like, Maybe, what are my chances here? Do a study for me. If I go and approach Herod and tell him he's unrighteous and he needs to repent, what do you think will, what do you think will be the outcome? Because if it's probably good, I'll do it. And if it's probably bad, maybe I won't. John's was a costly courage. In so doing, he risked a swift end, which eventually came from a cold sword. 
Earlier I read this quote to you. Let me read it again. Mark, the writer here of the Gospel that we've been reading, sandwiches the brutal, moving account of the martyrdom of the Baptists between the sending of the Twelve and their return in order to impress upon his readers the cost of discipleship. Contrary to what some false teachers say and are saying, Following Christ is not a ticket to Easy Street. In fact, your obedience to God does not guarantee earthly prosperity, but actually increases the likelihood of adversity. But many false teachers of our day would say the exact opposite. In fact, if I were to buy what the health and wealth preachers are selling then it looks like John could have used a good dose of the prosperity gospel. Some of the more radical preachers of this trash have said that people will come asking you about Jesus. You're not going to believe this. And I promise you, I'm quoting directly here in a second. I didn't take it out of context. I'm quoting directly. If you want to know who this is afterwards, you can come up and ask me. People will come asking you about Jesus when they see you being blessed monetarily and physically. Now here's this man's quote. Nothing will get attention like money. These worldly folks understand money. When we get our money, they cometh. If you want your loved ones saved, uh, yes, okay, then let the Lord prosper you. They're going to understand when you start walking in money, you want your family saved? Get your money. (laughs) Of course, in order for that to happen, you have to give Him your money, something they call seeds of faith. By the way, just to interpret that for you, seeds means cash, 20s, 50s, $100 bills. The more seeds you give, the more money you'll get back, the more money you'll get, the more people will come running to you to find out how you got your money, and you'll tell them it's because of Jesus. Okay, so let me see if I can apply this to the situation. How was John the Baptist going to get his money sitting locked up in prison? And if he couldn't get his money, how would he ever lure people to follow Jesus? You see what I'm saying? Maybe John needed. He just didn't know. He didn't know. No, he knew. He knew the truth. That's what he knew. What happened to John, the fact that his life for God was marked by suffering, not earthly prosperity, was not unique to John. Just in case you think, oh, that's just one guy. Everyone else is prosperous, right? No, John was not the exception to the rule. In fact, it would not be long after John's death before the one that he was promoting, namely Jesus, would also suffer and die because of his righteous life and words. 
By the way, when you get to the New Testament letters, we are again reminded of what true followers of Christ can expect in this temporary earthly life. Let me just show you a few. Let me show you a few. Philippians. It's a great passage. Paul says to the church there in Philippi, For it has been granted to you. Oh boy, I can't wait. What's been granted to me? It's the idea of a a gift. What do I have to look forward to? Tell me, Paul. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe. Yes! That's a good one. I like that one. In Him. But also suffer for His sake. Granted? You mean... God's gift to me is I would not only believe, but suffer for His sake? So maybe you're thinking this. Maybe you're not. Yeah, but that was to those people. He was talking to the church of Philippi. For us in America, it's all about getting some. Okay, alright, let's look at another passage. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, here he's writing to Timothy. Paul is instructing Timothy. Guess where from? Prison! Yes, Paul's writing a letter. The Apostle Paul is in prison for standing for Christ. He's facing the end of his life, basically execution. So he's giving some final instructions to his son in the faith, his disciple that he had brought up, Timothy. So he says, Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, all of that. Oh, here's some other stuff you followed. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yeah, from, the Lord, from them all, the Lord rescued me. Otherwise, he'd be dead. Verse 12. Indeed, Timothy. What's that word? Who does that include? Well, it includes all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. We'll be persecuted. Huh. By the way, prosperity gospel preachers will never take you to any passage like this. Thinking Christians should automatically have it good in this life because they are children of the King... And we are. We are. But thinking that means we should have it good in this life now can lead to resistance, beloved, or even refusal to really live for God in this world as He has commanded us. Since doing that often brings difficulties and trials, even persecutions. You know, this message right here If I went around the world to Christians in other parts of the country, like in Afghanistan or like in China or like in Cuba, they'd be like, duh. We know. We live this every day. America, though, is some confused people. If you've been taught that suffering for Christ should not be a reality for Christians today, if that's what you've been taught or you've bought that in some way, you will most likely shrink back from anything that looks or feels like it might cause that. You know what the result of that is? Here we go. 
A church unwilling to boldly stand for righteousness for fear of persecution. A church unwilling to sacrifice for Christ for fear of loss. A church unwilling to risk the possibility of emotional or even physical pain for fear of suffering. In other words, a lukewarm, apathetic, compromising, fruitless, distracted, and God-dishonoring church. Beloved, many Christian people in America are unprepared, I believe, for the days ahead. Our country, sadly, is progressively and quickly... By the way, we've only been around... Just so you guys... I was thinking about this this morning. We haven't been around that long, officially. A couple hundred years. It's not that long in the course of history. And maybe we started off right. Maybe we didn't. People want to argue about that. I don't want to get into all that. But wherever we were 30 or 40 years ago, we are quickly moving away from that. We are progressively becoming more and more as a country, more and more hostile to God and to His Word. So my question is this, will you, Christian, will I, stand for Jesus Christ regardless of the cost? So I pray that God would give us the grace and courage to stand and may we not be surprised when standing for Him turns into suffering for Him. This morning we are going to take communion together. We do this on the second week of the month. Before I introduce the communion table and the elements are passed out and we partake. I'm just going to be looking at a passage here in Matthew 26. You can turn there. It's page 832 in the church Bibles. I'm just going to read three verses, four verses, 26 through 29. This is the night uh, prior to the day that Jesus, or that night that Jesus would be betrayed and crucified, killed, murdered. The next day, he institutes what we celebrate now called the Lord's Supper or Communion as a memorial meal. And we're going to take communion in a second. Let me just say, uh, I see new people here, and we would love to get to know you better, so hang out after the service if you would. Make sure you drop that connection card off. Get the gift that we have for you. We would love to get to know you better. We would love for you to come back. This morning, Matthew 26. uh, By the way, we would love for the people who normally attend to come back also. I don't want us to over... (laughs) All right, Matthew 26, 26, here it is. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing, he broke it, he gave it to the disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. Symbolically. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. It's a reference to the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Hallelujah. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine. He's talking about wine. Grapes. Until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Three words there I just want you to focus on for a second. Until that day. Why tell them that? 
his disciples would face persecution like we've never, never known. They would be, most of them, killed for their faith. When we take communion and we're told to do it on a regular basis, it does a couple of things. It reminds us of the glories of what Christ accomplished for us on the cross that he would go to that next day. That he would give his life, his blood, he would die for the forgiveness of our sins. So that when we take of the bread and the cup, we are remembering Christ's substitutionary death on our behalf. That we are now free from the coming wrath of God. But even more than that, beloved, every time we take it, as Paul says in Corinthians, continue to do this until the Lord comes. It was their very hope, as he says here in Matthew 26, until that day. Because what's coming is tragic for you. It's going to be ugly. But after that, that day in the future, I will come and I will gather my people together and we will have a banquet and a feast and I will drink this wine anew with you. It was a constant reminder and hope. People in the prosperity gospel want to have that party now. And God didn't promise it now. Until that day. That's our party. Meanwhile, we live for Christ. Pointing people to Christ. Reminding people that their, their need to repent. That they might be ready for the coming of Christ. Even if that means mocking and suffering and persecution and loss. Even if it means all that. What do I care? I'm looking forward to that day. That day. So every time we partake of this, remember not only the incredible sacrifice made by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to redeem us and reconcile us back to God, but remember also, He's coming. He's coming. And that will be a party. So someone's going to come forward right now. I'm going to pray for the communion. By the way, this is for believers. It's for believers. If you're not sure if you're a believer, meaning that you follow after Jesus Christ, you've surrendered your life to Him, you're trusting in Him and Him alone to save you, if you're not that person or you're not sure, don't partake. Don't partake. It's not for you. But if you know that you know that you know that you are His and He is yours, then this certainly is your meal to partake of. So in a second, the trays will come forward. They're going to pass out the elements. You'll get some bread and a little cup of juice. Hold on to it. I'll come back up afterwards when they're all passed out, and we will partake together to demonstrate our unity that we have being in the body of Christ. Let me pray right now. Father God, I thank you for the gathering that you've brought here this morning. I thank you for your word. Father, sometimes it's difficult, uh, very difficult to just accept it immediately. Father, 
there's things in there that are very hard to accept. So we trust by your grace, your strength, that, Father, we would be people that would endure to the end, persevere regardless of the cost, that we would not back down or shut up regarding the righteousness of Jesus Christ and how people can have that, how people can be made right with God, that we would continue to be lights in a very dark world regardless of the cost, that we would stop trying to be satisfied in the passing temporary elements of this pathetic world and that we would look with hope and faith to that day. And may that give us the courage to stand strong in the midst of suffering in whatever level it comes. Father, help us. We delight in this meal, in this communion meal, in this memorial, to remember Your Son, the gift, the greatest gift that You gave out of love, a sacrifice for Your people. Father, help us to partake of it in a manner that is good and honorable. Help us, Father, now even to reflect upon the forgiveness of sins that we have, confessing our sins to You and and being thankful that we find forgiveness for those sins in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. Lord, bless this, the elements and bless Your people. In Jesus' name, Amen.